Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Shannon Bream from the Reagan National Defense Forum in Simi Valley, California. A special hour on the state of defense. A report card on America's military readiness to meet the challenges of an increasingly dangerous world. From the Middle East to Ukraine, the South China Sea to the Internet, America's armed forces must be ready to meet 21st century challenges to our nation's security. Israel's war with Hamas, the latest conflict to ignite instability, turbocharging attacks on our forces in the region from Iranian proxies. We'll get reaction from National Security Council Communications Coordinator John Kirby about the restart of the war and the headwinds the Biden White House faces from Democrats over conditioning future aid to Israel. We're going to be so good at what we do that our adversaries go not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Then the Joint Chiefs Chairman on preparing our men and women in uniform for the wide range of security responsibilities across the globe. General C.Q. Brown joins me here at the Reagan Library. And before serving in Congress, they served several tours of duty on the ground in two of America's longest wars. We sit down with Congressman Michael Waltz and Seth Moulton, veterans from both sides of the aisle, as the fight over defense spending is coming up against a stark deadline. Plus, is it cool to be patriotic now? It's always been cool to be contrarian, and I think right now it's... Uh, it's been a little contrarian to be very patriotic. Our inside look at how cutting-edge technology is shaping the future of warfare and battlefields worldwide. All right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from the Reagan Library in Southern California. Here are the top headlines making news today. Israel is widening its evacuation orders for Palestinians in southern Gaza, including in and around the cities of Yunis and Rafah, which both reported heavy bombardment overnight. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calling for total victory against Hamas and pushing back against White House calls to allow the Palestinian Authority to ultimately govern Gaza, claiming the group also calls for Israel's destruction. Meanwhile, in Paris, French authorities are looking into whether terrorism was to blame for a knife and hammer attack on tourists near the Eiffel Tower, leaving a German man dead and two others injured. A 26-year-old French national has been arrested. Let's turn now to Trey Yangston, southern Israel, with the very latest on the war in Gaza. Hello, Trey. Shannon, good morning. After a week-long ceasefire saw more than 100 hostages freed from Gaza, fighting has resumed for a third day. Israeli officials say the ground and air campaign in the second phase of this war against the Strip could last for months. New airstrikes overnight targeted tunnel shafts and weapons storage facilities. 
The Israelis also going after Hamas leadership. Yesterday, killing Wassam Farhat, the commander of Hamas's Sajaiya Battalion. Farhat was responsible for the deaths of seven soldiers during the 2014 war and participated in planning the October 7th massacre. New leaflet drops are being conducted across Gaza, urging civilians to evacuate areas around Gaza City and locations near the southern city of Han Yunis. With these drops comes new questions about where people will evacuate to. As for incoming fire, more than 250 rockets were launched toward Israel since Friday morning. We heard explosions near Israel's second largest city of Tel Aviv yesterday, and today a direct impact at a synagogue in the south. Take a look. You can see here the direct impact at a synagogue in the southern town of Storot. 58 days into this conflict, Hamas and Islamic Jihad have maintained their ability to fire from the northern part of Gaza. They are targeting not just communities here in the south, but also across central Israel. It's hard. I barely sleep. Maybe three hours. It's hard hearing the booms, the rockets. I didn't think it would fall on the synagogue. Talks to re-implement a ceasefire over the weekend in Doha collapsed, though today regional sources telling Fox News negotiations could still continue. Shannon? Trey Yingst in Israel. Thank you so much, Trey. This morning I spoke with John Kirby, the National Security Council Communications Coordinator. So Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke overnight about the situation in Israel. And when he was asked about the role post-war of the Palestinian Authority, he said this, that the Palestinian Authority, quote, pays murderers and educates their children to hate Israel and to my sorrow to murder Jews. And ultimately, for the disappearance of the state of Israel, he added, we would be putting the same element, utterly unreformed, utterly unchanged, into Gaza. Is that what the Biden administration expects Israel to do? Well, I think he hit it right on the head when he talked about uh, a PA that's unreformed. One of the things that Secretary Blinken uh, was talking to uh, our Israeli counterparts uh, about when he was there was the need to reform the Palestinian Authority, a revitalized Palestinian Authority that is much more uh, much more able to meet the aspirations and the needs uh, of the Palestinian people. We agree uh, that that's not the case right now. What what is the plan, though? I, I mean, what would the U.S. role be? Who should be governing? I mean, Netanyahu has said they don't want to occupy it. They don't want to control it. Right. So what happens next? Well, we agree with him on that, too. We, uh, we don't want to see uh, Israel reoccupy Gaza. We don't think that that's a, a long-term strategic goal that's, uh, that's really achievable or wise for the Israeli people. Uh, we believe that uh, at the core, the, the future of governance in Gaza has got to be something that the Palestinian people have a vote in, a voice in, uh, that they, they, have, they have a governance that is truly uh, representative of them and their aspirations. Now, what exactly that looks like, Shannon, we don't know. But we are asking the same questions you're asking me of ourselves and of our partners to see what we can do in the region, working again with uh, with both Israeli and Arab partners to see what a revitalized, reformed Palestinian authority could look like. And could that reformed Palestinian authority actually be able to, to govern Gaza in a way that, again, meets those aspirations? That Those are the same questions we're asking ourselves. Uh, we don't have firm answers right now, but uh, but we don't believe it's too early uh, to be looking hard at this. Yeah, and there's a lot of probably heartbreak and destruction between here and there as conflict and fighting has resumed in the region. There's obviously coordinated mess messaging out from the administration this weekend about the current strategy underway in Israel. Here's a little bit from the Secretary of Defense here at the Reagan Forum and also the Vice President. The center of gravity is the civilian population. 
And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. No forcible displacement, no reoccupation, no siege or blockade. So the question is, is that a public message for Israel? Because I imagine you're having those same conversations privately. Or was that message for the more progressive wing of the president's own party who was saying things like this? No, actually, Shannon, um, you hit you hit it again in the first part of your question. This is a this is a consistent message that we have been uh, taking to our Israeli counterparts uh, privately. And, of course, obviously, we're, we're talking publicly, too, about the same big goals. And I would tell you, Shannon, that and Secretary Blinken talked about this before he left Israel, that uh, uh, the Israelis have been receptive to those messages. And just look in fact, you know, if you talk about civilian casualties, Yes, they are conducting some shaping operations for, for potential moving uh, operations in the south. They've actually put up a map online uh, that is identified for the people of Gaza, areas where they should not go and areas where they can go uh, with a measure of safety. Now, I don't know of too many modern militaries uh, that actually take that extra step. So uh, they clearly are trying to make an effort to be more precise and more cautious here. And that's, of course, something we've been urging them to do literally uh, from the beginning of the conflict. That's not something that a current sitting congresswoman believes is actually happening. Here's her take on what's happening and our role in it. What we are witnessing is the gross violation of human rights in Gaza. And that is being done with U.S. military assistance. So what is your message to her and others on the progressive left of the president's party who are what, saying these things publicly? What's being done with U.S. military and security assistance is helping our friend and partner Israel go after a truly genocidal threat, a threat posed by Hamas. And I think it's just too easy as we get further and further away from the 7th of October to forget what happened on that day. 1,200 Israelis literally slaughtered kids in front of their parents, parents in front of their kids. Um, and we've got to help Israel eliminate the threat to the, to the Israeli nation and the Israeli people from that threat from Hamas. And we're going to keep doing that. Absolutely. Now, look, at the same time, just like you and I have been talking now for a few minutes, uh, we want them to do it in, in the most careful, cautious, deliberate way possible. How they do this matters, as Secretary Blinken has said, and we're continuing to work with them. And again, I would stress that the Israelis have been receptive to those messages, and they have actually altered the way they have been conducting some of their operations. Now, I also want to say clearly too many thousands of individuals, civilians, have been killed. Too many more thousands have been wounded. We have more than a million that have been internally displaced in Gaza. We're not blind to the humanitarian crisis, which is why we work so hard to get that pause in place for seven days so that we can get hostages out and get an accelerated amount of food, water, medicine, and fuel into Gaza. So we're, we're certainly working on, on the humanitarian plight here. Uh, but I, I think we've, we've got to stay core to what happened on the 7th of October and remember the threat that the Israeli people are still facing from Hamas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's existential. And, and, but critics uh, of the guidance or the conversations that we're having publicly and privately with Israel um, say that the Biden administration is making demands that Israel cannot actually fulfill. Here's from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. If Israel must do more to protect civilians but can't evacuate them and can't hit Hamas when it hides in key civilian infrastructure and safe zones, how is it to fight at all? Israel deserves U.S. support as it topples Hamas, not a repeat of Mr. Biden's Ukraine treatment. They say was rules, restrictions and hesitations that push a decisive victory further away. How much of this council that you're having privately with Israel um, 
requires them to pass any decisions by us before <laughs> None. they take them. None. I mean, this, this that argument just isn't is doesn't comport with the facts that we're late, that we're laying down restrictions or sort of red lines for Israel. Uh, this, Israel's a sovereign nation attacked in a brutal way on the 7th of October. They have every right and responsibility to go after the terrorist group uh, that perpetrated those, those attacks and plan them. And oh, by the way, has made it clear they're going to do it again and do more. They have every right and responsibility to go after them. We would do the same thing. Any nation would. Now, what we have done is talk to them, share our perspectives and our lessons learned about urban warfare, as Secretary Austin said, uh, about not turning a tactical victory into a strategic defeat. Of course, we're going to share that. That's what friends do. But they're making these decisions. They're deciding the targets that they're going to hit. Uh, we obviously will continue to talk to them about being as careful and cautious as, as possible. We don't want to see any more innocent civilians killed. And I don't think the Wall Street Journal wants that either. Uh, but we, we but we are not going to stop giving them the security assistance that they need to go after this, as you quite accurately put it, an existential threat to the Israeli people. Now, quickly, I want to make sure that we ask, uh, how many Americans do we think are still hostages? Why don't we have them back? When do we get them back? Well, Shannon, we think the number obviously is uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to nine, probably more like nine. We're not we don't have perfect visibility on all of those Americans. So that's why we're being a little bit careful with the uh, with the specificity of the numbers. But that's kind of the population that we believe it is. Um, uh, we, we know that there's at least one other American woman who's unaccounted for. We don't know much about her, her condition, where she is. And I would say the same thing, unfortunately, about the other Americans that are being held hostage. We just don't have perfect visibility. Now, we're getting some some information from the families who, that, who at least are helping us understand uh, why they believe their loved ones were taken hostage. And the Israelis are also trying to flesh out some of our information. But we're working at this literally by the hour. We want to get that pause put back in place so that, again, more hostages come, can come out. I'll say this, two things, if you'll allow me. One, Hamas is the reason that the, that the pause ended, because they refused to, to put on the list additional women and children that we know they that they are holding and they're refusing to let go. Uh, and, and two, uh, we're working it literally by the hour to see if we can't get this back on track. John Kirby, we always appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Yes, ma'am. Good to be with you. Up next, my conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown Jr., with his assessment of the state of our military and increasing threats from China, Russia, and Iran as we examine the state of defense here at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, here's the 40th president of the United States back in 1983, giving an address to the nation on defense and national security. The defense policy of the United States is based on a simple premise. The United States does not start fights. We will never be an aggressor. We maintain our strength in order to deter and defend against aggression, to preserve freedom and peace. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Of course, we can't do everything. 
But where our interests and our values are at stake and where we can make a difference, America must lead. We must not be isolationists. We must not be the world's policemen. But we can and should be the world's very best peacemaker. President Bill Clinton, during his 1996 State of the Union address on America's role in the world just a few years after the end of the Cold War. Well, this weekend, I had the honor of interviewing General C.Q. Brown, Jr., the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in front of a live audience here at the Reagan Library. I got his reaction to brand-new Reagan National Defense survey results on a broad range of military and security issues. We started with the military threats from China. 51% of Americans now say that they, they see China as the greatest foreign threat. I thought it was it, it, at least surprising to me that 74% of them said they fear we could actually be in a war with China within five years. What would you say um, to the American people out there responding to the survey who now view China with increased uh, worry and concern? Well, what I, first thing I tell them is uh, they, they ought to be very proud of their military, uh, that we're ready for whatever uh, comes our way. At the same time, we want to be so ready that uh, we don't have a conflict. And, you know, as you know, we're here and it says peace through strength, uh, our strength that we demonstrate as a, as a military will help bring that peace. So let's stay with China because uh, this issue of competition versus conflict, the president says we're going for the former, not the latter. And there's a lot of information in the survey about how people think we're doing on that front. A majority of Americans think over the next 10 years, according to the numbers in the survey, that China will outpace the U.S. on both military power and economic strength. What's your outlook on that? Well, my, my, my real role here and job is to actually make sure that, uh, particularly on the military side, that doesn't occur, which is why I'm so focused on uh, accelerating change. Uh, it's why I'm focused on the collaboration we do, uh, you know, particularly having gum uh, out here the past couple of years, not only here at Reagan, but also out to Silicon Valley and looking at how we work uh, together on our national defense and how that helps us economically. And one of those ways that it's, uh, it's really on the stage, the world stage right now, is this issue of China and Taiwan, which was also covered in the survey. 73% of people responded to the survey this year that they were somewhat worried about the possibility of China actually invading Taiwan. You said in the past you don't think it will be an actual um, you know, physical operation to take Taiwan. It's logistically very difficult to do that, but there are other ways that China will pressure Taiwan. So how do you see that playing out? Well, just think about what happened in Hong Kong. And the first thing I would say is we want to be, um, and we all should be worried uh, whether it's going to happen or not. And part of the, the reason why deterrence is so important so a conflict does not occur. Um, but if you look at what happened in Hong Kong and even some of the things that the PRC is doing today is, you know, putting pressure on Taiwan, putting pressure on uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific um, and whether it be economically or, or somewhat militarily uh, that we've seen, um, continued pressure uh, to, to wear, uh, uh, in this case, Taiwan down or others down to, uh, to their own uh, gain. And, and we've got to pay attention to that, which is why, um, you know, I go back to the, you know, really over the course of the five years, you know, when I was the commander of Pacific Air Force before I became the chief of staff of the Air Force, watching how many of the nations in the region uh, and out of the survey, the American public starts to see the PRC as a challenge, and now we're able to highlight those things together, which helps with deterrence. Seventy percent in the survey also said that they have real concerns the conflict will spill over into a NATO country, then directly forcing the U.S. into this battle. 
Any thoughts on where you see Putin going? Do you think that's more or less likely now, almost two years into this? Well, um, what, what I see right now is, you know, if you think about what Putin intended to do from the very start and uh, the territory he gained and the territory he lost in Ukraine, um, things have not gone uh, according to his plan. One of the key areas that I, I think, uh, because of what happened in Ukraine, uh, NATO is stronger than it's ever been. In fact, it's larger now and uh, with uh, Finland and Sweden uh, soon to follow. Um, and because of that strength in the uh, dialogue with uh, many of our uh, NATO partners, uh, we're all committed to ensure this does not uh, expand uh, into NATO and go broader. How worried are you about U.S. military aid to Ukraine causing the U.S. to deplete its weapons stockpile? And now we're obviously assisting Israel in other areas as well. Some 63% said they worry about the depletion of our assets, military assets. Can you address that? Well, what we've gone through is we've uh, supported both Ukraine and, uh, and Israel. Uh, we go through our own analysis. We have our, you know, what we require in order to uh, execute our operational plans. And we go through the, that level of uh, analysis as we make decisions of uh, the, the support, we, security systems we provide for, for both nations. It goes back into our defense industrial base to build out capability, not only for our allies and partners, but also for us. Um, and and that, that, to me, is important because it helps uh, us continue down the path of, of modernization uh, and to bring in uh, capability. And, you know, defense industrial base, the supply chain, all those are important to our, uh, to our defense. So let's talk about artificial intelligence. Also shows up in the survey. Um, when we asked if the military, when Reagan asked if the military should integrate more use of AI, um, about half of Americans said that it's too soon. They don't want to comment on that or, or assess whether that would be a good match. But of those who did weigh in, more than half of them said uh, in the survey they think it's a bad idea for the military to be using AI. So how do you address those concerns? Well, the first thing I, I, I think about is uh, AI has... Um, um, has opportunities and capability. The way I think about uh, using AI is, first of all, we have operational problems that we have to solve as a, as a military. And AI is not the uh, panacea that's going to solve all those problems. Or you just can't sprinkle AI dust and everything, and it's going to make life better. Um, what we do have to do is look at where AI has a practical application based on what we're trying to achieve. So as we sit in the middle of all of these challenges here, um, there are some recruiting goals that have been missed um, by some of the branches. Um, so the defense survey also asks if a close friend or family member were considering joining the military, would you encourage them or discourage them? 51% said they would encourage people. What is your message to the next generation to being open um, to joining, to wearing the, the uniform, even more broadly, to be excited or encouraged about being part of this? Well, the first thing I, I, I highlight is just the great opportunity um, and uh, the fact that we as a, as a nation talk about the value of service, whether it's in, uh, in uniform or uh, working uh, as a civilian, whether you're in the Department of Defense or some part, other part of our government or parts of your community, how important it is. And then just uh, I think about the opportunities um, and uh, the things that uh, young people will have the opportunity to do if they were to join our, our military. And we've got to talk about that. Um, and partly the reason I say that is because I believe young people only aspire to be what they see or know about. If you don't know about the opportunities of serving in the military, you may never pursue that career field. And so um, I'd say from my own personal experience, um, this whole thing was my dad's idea, uh, <laughs> supported by my mom. Um, quote, four years in the military will not hurt you. <laughs> Several decades later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, 
And so that's, you know, my degrees in engineering. I was going to be an Air Force engineer for four years and get out. Got a ride in a T-37 when I was in college. One of our trainer aircraft, you know, had the helmet and the parachute and did acrobatics. And I go, that, that was, that's kind of fun. I think I want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I became an F-16 pilot, and I, I still get to fly today. Uh, and so it's those kinds of opportunities, I think, that uh, you just don't know until you, you have a chance to experience it. And whether you stay for just a handful of years or you stand for, you know, a handful of decades, um, there are great opportunities uh, uh, serving in our military. And by the way, being a pilot, is it ever hard for you to sit there while someone else is flying the plane? Oh, yeah, it is. Because <laughs> you can hear things. You're always wondering what they're doing up there. You know, it's like being like riding in the back seat when your, your spouse is driving. Yeah. You know, it's not. Uh... <laughs> What's going on up there? Uh, we, would... uh, we've all been there. I can tell by the laughter. <laughs> okay, I'd like to save my most controversial question for last because now you're warmed up. <laughs> Next Saturday, Army or Navy? <laughs> I mean, I feel like as a neutral Air Force guy, well, you weigh in. Well, actually, this year I've had a chance to go to the uh, uh, Navy Air Force game and uh, uh, both, and then the uh, Air Force Army game. Mm-hmm. And I got asked the same question. Um, and uh, so next Saturday, um, I actually just look for a good game. I'm a huge football fan, so I like an interesting game versus a blowout. I look forward to, you know, shaking hands uh, with the midshipmen and cadets uh, while we're out there and, and uh, watching a good game. So warrior, patriot, warfighter, and a diplomat, too. <laughs> Chairman, General, thank, thank you. you. Our thanks again to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Brown. So two lawmakers with multiple tours of duty, one in Iraq, the other in Afghanistan, join us with their thoughts from opposite sides of the aisle. I'm excited to announce this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The mistakes made twice in this century when armistice was followed by recklessness and defense was purged as if the world were permanently safe. President George H.W. Bush from his 1992 State of the Union address. This weekend here at the Reagan Library, I sat down with two current lawmakers, both military veterans. Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, a Marine Corps captain who served four tours of duty in Iraq. And Republican Congressman Michael Waltz from Florida, a combat-decorated Green Beret who served multiple tours in Afghanistan. So we are here at the Reagan National Defense Forum, and we've got a lot of survey results. And I'm going to start with a tough one and let you guys speak to it. Uh, Folks were asked, do you have trust and confidence in Congress? Five said a great deal. 21 percent said some. That leaves you with 71 percent who said little or no trust and confidence in Congress why do you think that is? Because we're dysfunctional. I mean, for the first time in history, we didn't have a speaker for three weeks. That's never happened before. And that doesn't send a good message to our allies, to our adversaries around the globe. It doesn't send a good message to the American people. In fact, one of the most frequent questions I get from my friends, people who love me, is, Seth, why do you keep doing this? But actually, I think it's a really important time for all those reasons to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I mean, a little bit of that, I 
throwback on the media. You know, we love to cover the train wreck, um, and uh, that gets covered a lot. But there's actually a lot of bipartisan work that does get done. Mm -hmm. Case in point, our defense bill came out of the committee that Seth and I serve on uh, nearly unanimously the last mm -hmm. 61 years. So there's a lot of work that get, gets done. I don't think everybody's fully aware of it. But at the same time, I have a lot of folks that ask me, well, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing up there? And my response as a small government conservative is as little as possible. I want, <laughs> aside from defending the nation, I want D.C. out of your lives as much as possible. And I think a lot of things should be powered down to state and local. So I, I get the numbers, but um, a lot of my job is to, one, oversee the administration, but then two is to uh, keep keep DC out of your lives. Uh, I don't think one size fits all coming out of coming out of Washington is necessarily the solution. Well, you all have very different perspectives on a number of big issues, but you sure. do share that you've been veterans. You have served our country in uniform, and that's going to give you a unique perspective, obviously, on how you see things on the Hill. You mentioned national defense authorization. That's among the many things you guys have got to get done. I mean, that's something that's really not optional. So uh, you guys have served in uniform. What does it mean to the men and women in uniform to go from CR to CR, to watch the NDAA possibly get stuck with a couple of folks who have real objections to very specific things? The most important thing that our military needs to do right now is modernize as quickly as possible to meet a totally new generation of threats. And we can't do that if we just copy last year's budget and make it this year's budget. That's what a CR does. So when we don't have a functional Congress that can't pass budgets, uh, can't get the, yeah. the NDAA done, the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual defense bill that should be totally bipartisan. If we can't do that expeditiously, that sends the wrong message to our troops. We're, we should be here to support our troops, and we're not doing a great job. But there are some measures that were tucked in, primarily by conservatives in the House, uh, that Democrats aren't going to vote for. Um, they don't like some of the provisions that have been included with respect to abortion or other cultural issues. How do you defend those when it comes to getting the money in place for the military? Well, look, I mean, one of the provisions was a, was a ban on critical race theory. That was actually my provision. I think we have to fight hard uh, to keep the military a meritocracy. Uh, race, religion, social economic background, your politics, that should be left at the door. We need the best of the best. I understand that's controversial to some. Um, but, you know, some things we're going to we're going to push in there. And then the vast majority we we do end up agreeing on, because when it comes to the threats we face from China, Russia, Iran, the global uh, threat of terrorism, uh, the, the reporting is clear that one, we've never faced the threats like we fa face today. And then two, our military is aging. Uh, it uh, we are spending actually record low amounts. Uh, on it uh, in terms of percentage of GDP compared to the Cold War. And I think Seth's right in that we have a solemn obligation. If we're going to send men and women out in those planes, tanks, and ships, uh, they have to have the best equipment, the best training, and, and the best resources. That is one of the reasons I think we're both passionate about getting more veterans uh, into Congress and, and back into our political system. So you've also got to look at funding that goes outside the U.S. that does impact national security interests and our allies. Yeah. You've got Israel. You've got Ukraine. The White House wants a supplemental that puts everything together. I'm supposing that you two may have differences of opinion on whether you can get something done clean on Israel. Standalone measure, yes or no? 
Well, I, th I think the problem is that, uh, in my experience, a lot of Republicans support Ukraine behind the scenes and then aren't willing to vote for it in public. And but that's why. I mean, the, the but, 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 but you're right. But, they, but it, it's so far. Right. But the question is, is that changing? I mean, you're seeing the number of Republicans voting against funding for Ukraine go up. Um, I understand it's a tough political position uh, for many Republicans mm. back home. I mean, actually, what we're trying to do by put the, putting these things together is fundamentally make it easier for getting this funding passed, which we know is important to our allies around the globe, because it sends a message to Vladimir Putin, to Xi Jinping, to every autocrat that thinks they're just going to bully us and our allies, that you're not going to get away with it. At this moment, though, would you vote for a standalone for Israel? Standalone aid bill? Not if it imperiled funding for Ukraine. But, I mean, look, if we pass funding for Ukraine, so we get over that hurdle, and then it means vote, voting for a standalone for Israel, sure. Well, look, package? I mean, uh, on the Ukraine piece, I, I think we are past the point of blank checks, don't ask questions, just send, you know, I'm Joe Biden, trust me, and send me tens of billions of dollars. And, and uh, it, it is astounding to me that he hasn't articulated to this day what does the end state look like, what does success look like, is fully ejecting the Russians from Crimea, a critical national interest of the United States. Uh, how long is it going to take? How much money is it going to cost? What's the strategy to get there? And the frustration that I know a lot of Democrats share is that the president has essentially dithered us now into a stalemate by not giving them what they needed up front to win. Uh, and so here we are uh, stuck uh, essentially in a war of attrition and to say, hey, you Republicans, go to your taxpayers. I'm not going to articulate what success looks like and tell them to dig deeper in their pockets. Meanwhile, the Europeans, the Germans in particular, just voted down their defense budget, their 2 percent commitment. Uh, look, we have a lot of questions, and I think it should be dealt with def uh, uh, separately. And the administration needs to answer these for the American people how much longer is this going to go, Shannon? Look, we, we have to go to our taxpayers, too, right? It's not just Republican taxpayers sure. that, are, that are funding this. And, and I think, actually, the administration has been very careful along the way to make sure that we give the Ukrainians what they need without escalating way to a careful. larger uh, war with Russia. So there is, there is debate about this point. Yeah. But I, I don't want to lose the bipartisanship here because some of the questions that Mike is bringing up about, you know, what is the end game? I mean, this is a big question that I've been asking for Israel, Netanyahu. It's a question we need to ask Ukraine as well. That's a fair question for us to have in Congress in a bipartisan way. It's a fair question for the American people to have. Well, we thank you both for serving in uniform, serving our country, but what you're doing now as well. The country's counting on you. So thanks for stopping in to discuss all the challenges ahead. Thank you. My thanks again to the congressman for an insightful conversation this weekend. Up next, the GP gets ready for its fourth presidential primary debate, this time at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Up next, our political panel joins us with predictions as contenders are still fighting to actually make it to that stage. Our future will demand more. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A set of core convictions that have guided me as commander in chief. 
I believe that the United States military can achieve any mission, that we are and must remain the strongest fighting force the world has ever known. President Barack Obama, just a few weeks before leaving office in December of 2016. Let's bring in our panel to talk about that and more. Carl Rove, former Bush White House advisor and Fox News contributor. Roger Zakheim, the Ronald Reagan Institute director. Mark Thiessen, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Washington Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Great to have all of you here with us on set this morning. Who brought the jet? <laughs> Roger did. Yes, you did. Actually, we'll take it back to D.C. <laughs> it's a good-looking uh, option here. Okay, so let's. Talk, we're talking defense this weekend. Yeah. Um, Mark, you had a very interesting column out about Ukraine's funding, because that is one of the fights they're still having in Washington, how you get that together, get it across the finish line. You say most of the spending is actually being invested and happening here in the U.S. We'll talk about your critics, but make your case. Yeah, so, I mean, it's one of the best-kept secrets of, in Washington is that 90% of the military aid that we give to Ukraine does doesn't go to Ukraine. It stays here in the United States uh, to produce weapons for Ukraine or to replace weapons that we've sent to Ukraine from our stockpiles. And our, and now we're building more modern versions for our uh, for our military. Uh, we tracked 117 production lines in 31 states and 71 cities that are producing. That's creating jobs for America, but it's also enhancing our national security. A perfect example. We had not built a single Stinger missile in the United States since 2005, almost two decades. Uh, why is that? Because we were fighting terrorists who didn't have jet planes. Well, China has jet fighters. And now, because of Ukraine aid, we're spending $465 million to build Stinger missiles again. And this is happening across the spectrum on all sorts of weapon systems. We're giving them old equipment that's been sitting in our stockpiles for decades, building new modern stuff that's helping our national security, creating hot production lines uh, for weapons that we'll need for in case of Taiwan, for China, and also to help Israel. And we are very backlogged to the billions, to the tune of billions when it comes to Taiwan. They're waiting on us on yeah. many of these things. So there are critics out there who say, though, we're doing things like we're subsidizing Ukrainian businesses. We're paying for every first responder in the country. And this is part of the concern, as noted in CBS News. They say some of the concerns over aid to Ukraine boil down to oversight. Ukraine is a young democracy with a history of corruption. According to the monitoring group Transparency International, it's ranked the second most corrupt country in Europe. Only Russia scores better. Roger. The economic support certainly is an issue that requires the oversight that that survey was talking about, and that we heard that from members of Congress over the weekend. But what the United States needs to do, and we can make the biggest impact in Ukraine, is allow them to win militarily. And the work that Mark has done is to demonstrate that not only is it decisive on the battlefield, but it has a decisive impact on the United States as it relates to the United States continuing to be the arsenal of democracy. So if the Congress comes out of this debate where we decide the United States is going to provide the security assistance and we'll leave it to Europe or other partners and allies to take care of the economic support, so be it. But it would be a disaster if the Congress comes out of this and stops funding entirely. We would lose Ukraine and give Vladimir Putin a victory. Well, and all of this is tied up with the issue of border. Uh, there are negotiations on the Senate side because um, the Republicans say they want to extract real change, not just money for the border, because that's in that supplemental across the White House put together, but actual policy change when it comes to the border. That's one of the headaches they have. This White House is also, as we talked about at the top of the show, they're, they're caught between criticism on the left and the right when it comes to what's going on in the Middle East. Yesterday, interestingly enough, a, a group of national Muslim leaders from swing states got together in Michigan for something they called hashtag abandon Biden in 2024 conference. 
not something the White House wants to be dealing with in a re-election campaign. Carl? No, they don't. But on the other hand, uh, Americans like to have a strong, resolute leader who stands for something. And if, and if Joe Biden and the Biden political machine decide that in order to appease a group of pal pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli activists on the left wing of the Democratic Party, they're going to sell out one of our great allies and fail to give it the support necessary to win this war, then they will be morally bankrupt and deserve to lose. So the president helps himself by being a strong, resolute leader and using his bully pulpit to explain to the American people what the issue is, not only in Israel, but in Ukraine, and explain why America is doing what it did. Yesterday morning, we began the first session with a brilliant explanation of why presidential leadership in explaining what America is doing is an obligation of any president. I think Mark did a hell of a job in presenting that point. Aww. Thank you, Paul. Kudos there for you, Mark. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about the folks on the other side of the aisle who would like to be the commander-in-chief making these decisions. Um, a big endorsement for Nikki Haley this week, Americans for Prosperity, came out. Um, and she's got a new ad out, by the way, a new TV ad. And she's talking about leaving behind chaos and drama of the past. Not sure exactly what she's referencing there, but we can all make our assumptions. Um, but here's the idea of asking this question now about moving forward. How big of a blow was the endorsement for the DeSantis campaign? Of course, anyone in the field would have enjoyed getting the support. Um, millions in ad dollars, grassroots campaigning, that kind of thing. Um, the DeSantis spokesperson, Andrew Romeo, said this, like clockwork, the pro-open borders, pro-jailbreak bill establishment is lining up behind a moderate who has no mathematical pathway of defeating the former president. Carl. Well, strong language for the DeSantis campaign, but as, as in August, uh, it was 16 points for DeSantis in Iowa and six points for Nikki Haley on the basis of one debate performance. She jumped up to 16 points in Iowa and probably is today ahead of uh, Ron DeSantis in there. She's already ahead of him in New Hampshire, proving to be the you know counterpoint to the front runner, Donald Trump. So um, I'd be focused on advocating more for my candidate than trying to drag down the person who has got the momentum. The only way to recapture the momentum for Ron DeSantis is to do things that will cause people to say, you know what, I really ought to be for him. And that didn't help. Well, but by the way, this morning he uh, said that he's going to put out uh, something that would be a replacement for Obamacare. He says the, the details are forthcoming. Uh, it sounds like a very ambitious proposal, but is that the kind of thing, Mark, that will help him? Well, I mean, it, I don't know what it is, so I can't tell you whether it's a good idea or not, but I can tell you that folk, he's, that would be taking Carl's advice, which is to explain how you're going to lead. I think that's how people win presidential elections. But I think what, also what we're having here is that we need to realize this isn't a normal Amer Republican primary. There are really two Republican primaries happening. There's the primary to challenge Trump. And then there's a primary against Trump for the Republican nomination. And that field is now the first primary has to has to end conclusively before the second primary can happen or else Trump wins over with a plurality. And so I think that field is down to two candidates now. It's Nikki Haley versus Ron DeSantis for the right to challenge Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And we need to have that. And I hope they're the only two people on the debate stage uh, because they're the only people who have a chance. And let them fight it out. And let's see if somebody can emerge as the challenger to Trump and give Republicans a choice. So, Roger, that next debate happens this week. We're still waiting to see who, who is getting in. Uh, there is a yes. fight to try to get to that stage. But what will you be watching for? Who has to really bring it home this week? I'm looking for the person that could speak to the American people and be authentic in doing so. And I really think the way Mark's framework outlined it here, that's going to be the one who's going to kind of win out to challenge Donald Trump. I think Nikki Haley's been doing that quite well. She's not trying to play in both camps. She's true to herself. And I think that's why she's seeing the support. I'd love to hear them talk about national security and foreign policy, particularly through the lens of what the American people should care about. Think about what's going on in Hamas right now. If I tell you 444 days, you all know what I'm talking about. 
It's the days that you had hostages, U.S. hostages in Tehran. If I say 57 days, American people don't realize that's how many days we've had nine American wow. citizens captive in Gaza. That's the sort of thing that Kahali can hit on. That's what appealed to American people, and I think we'll hear something like that. I do think, and there is some daylight, I think, on the issues of foreign policy, which could be very interesting as we listen to them this week, making their case to be the ones to take on. Lots of military uh, factories building weapons in Florida. Governor DeSantis ought to support that. All right, we'll see. <laughs> if that comes up this week, panel, thank you very much. Up next, Fox Chief National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin joins us for an in-depth look at all of the high-tech military hardware that is now transforming the 21st century battlefield. With the Freestyle Libre. The Pentagon is enlisting some of the brightest minds from Silicon Valley to create a whole new generation of military technology to keep America's armed forces the best in the world. Fox Chief National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin joins us now with details. Good to see you, Jen. Shannon, I've been coming to the Reagan National Defense Forum here at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, since it started in 2013. And the biggest change from my point of view is the shift in the perception of China. This year, the annual Reagan National Defense Survey found more than half of all Americans now view China as the country's greatest threat. The other big change took place in Silicon Valley. Ten years ago, those tech innovators wouldn't touch a contract with the Pentagon. It was mostly the prime contractors like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and others who came to the forum. Now that's all changed. I talked to some of the nation's leading tech innovators about what is driving this cataclysmic shift. It's effectively a drone that folds itself down to fit into this tube. And I can mount this tube on a helicopter, on a truck, on a boat, or even just carry it around. I push a button, and this drone is ejected out of the tube. Palmer Lucky favors Hawaiian shirts over camouflage. The California college dropout made his first billion dollars at age 21, designing virtual reality headsets for gamers. Now he makes weapons for the Pentagon. I was 19 years old, living in a camper trailer, putting myself through school. But it was his experience in China and getting fired by Facebook that made him shift gears and start building weapons to fend off China in the future. Were you burned by China? We were having our IP stolen all of the time. We were being spied on all of the time. Now he and a small group of Silicon Valley defense startups are trying to revolutionize the way the Pentagon does business, saving the taxpayer money and confronting the world's autocrats. I wanted to get people out of working on you know, augmented reality mustache emojis and put them to work on building autonomous weapons that would keep the United States safe and deter aggression from dictators around the world. Three years before Russia's invasion, he met Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, in New York to tell him about his company, Anduril, and its sentry technology, which the U.S. government was already using to track illegal migrants coming across the southern border. He wonders if history would have been different if Ukraine had had his technology. We would have been able to potentially provide targeting information to long-range precision fires that could have stopped Russia in their tracks before they got to any of these civilian-populated areas. Two weeks after Russia's invasion, Anduril ghost drones began operating in Ukraine. Without any tools, I can take the rotors off. I can take 
the payload's off. So someone can put this in their backpack. You can literally mount it into a backpack. You can actually carry a couple of them in a backpack. And now Ukraine is also using his counter-drone technology. It accelerates to speeds up to 188 miles an hour and runs into the other drone, busting it into a whole bunch of tiny pieces of plastic. It costs a hundredth of the price or less of missiles that have been used to engage drones otherwise. The Pentagon is taking note, learning how these high-tech autonomous systems are changing the battlefield, giving Ukraine the edge for pennies on the dollar. We will be able to spend less money countering Russia because of the money we have spent on Ukraine burning down the capacity that they've had since the days of the Soviet Union. When he started Andrel in 2017, Silicon Valley engineers refused to work with the Pentagon. Thousands of Google employees signed a petition to halt Google's Project Maven, which would have helped the Pentagon analyze drone data. Imagine if during the Cold War, if our most innovative technology companies had had to do whatever would keep Soviet Russia happy and therefore refuse to work on national security problems. We wouldn't have Silicon Valley. We wouldn't have a tech industry. Lucky says Silicon Valley rebuffed the Pentagon for one simple reason. They needed to keep the Chinese Communist Party happy. They were dependent on them for manufacturing in China. In 2016, former Defense Secretary Ash Carter began to woo Silicon Valley. Two years ago, Catherine Boyle joined other venture capitalists at Andreessen Horowitz. They committed $500 million earlier this year to new companies that support the national interest. You have the war in Ukraine. And for a lot of these founders, they weren't born on September 11, 2001. This was the first time they had really seen a land war in Europe. Uh, it was a wake-up call that defense is incredibly important and that we need to invest in it. She dubbed the movement American Dynamism. American Dynamism is a technology movement. It's companies that are being built in support of the national interest. If our greatest technologists at places like Google are not going to work on this problem, we have to create companies that will. Andrel was one of her first investments. We can make a world where we have an unfair advantage, where the countries that believe in self-determination and democracy build technologies that accrue benefits to these democratic self-governing nations. While these tech engineers couldn't stop the Russian invasion, they hoped to stop China from taking Taiwan. A lot of firms made the wrong bet. They bet on the wrong country. And I think they're recognizing that now. Is it cool to be patriotic now? Is it cool to be patriotic? I mean, it's always been cool to be contrarian, and I think right now it's, uh, it's been a little contrarian to be very patriotic. Look at what's happened in Ukraine. Look at what's happened in Israel. Look at what's brewing in Taiwan. If you want to stop Russia, China, or anyone else from trampling on the rights of these democratic nations, if you want to stop them from murdering civilians, you have to get involved well ahead of the invasion. Jennifer Griffin, Fox News. That is it for today. Thank you for joining us for our State of Defense special live here at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum. I'm Shannon Breen. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Fox News Sunday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.